0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From Lamashtu to Lamia and Lilith, mermaids, vampires and everything in between. Throughout history, women have been portrayed in myth as seductive, child-killing monsters. Sarah Clegg is the author of a new book, Woman's Law, which explores some of these monstrous legends, and she speaks to Rachel Denning about how they've been co-opted by societies before being recast as symbols of women's liberation. Please be aware that this podcast contains descriptions of child murder and death. So, Sarah, welcome to the History Extra podcast. It's great to have you on today.
1: Um, We're talking about your book, Woman's Law, which looks at how women have been portrayed as various monsters and creatures through history, from seductresses and mermaids to child-killing monsters. Um, So I wanted to start by asking you about some of the stories that you feature in your book. Could you give our listeners a few examples of the kind of creatures um, that feature?
2: So in ancient Mesopotamia, there's Lamashtu, who's this talon-footed, lion-headed monster who stalks babies and pregnant women um, she'll drown babies in amniotic fluid she'll strangle them with the umbilical cord she drags children out of their mothers before their time with her terrifyingly long fingers she's absolutely horrific um, there's also a creature called Lilitu, who is a virgin ghost um, so a girl who died before she could marry or have children and she's this quite sad figure who is held responsible for nocturnal emissions and wet dreams in men. Um, And she's really portrayed as this young girl who never had a chance at life and is desperate to try and find kind of mortal love, or at least mortal sex, and does so by attacking mortal men. Um, There's also a monster called Lamia, who is an ancient Greek child killer um, who will devour babies and also harms mothers. She's a seductress as well. So there's also Lamia, who is um, an ancient Greek monster, again of sort of child killing and infant death. Um, She's thought to be sort of half snake or at least very serpentine. The story told about her is that she is an ancient queen whose youth rapes and Hera becomes insanely jealous and drives Lamia mad to the extent that Lamia eats her own children. And then seeing what she's done, Lamia turns serpentine and monstrous. And she's so driven by jealousy that other women have children when her own have died that she attacks mothers and their children um, constantly. She is also thought of as this seductress. So there's a story about her sitting by the shore of the sea by a passage, which if you sail into, then you can't sail out of again. And she buries her snake half in the sand because she's human from her torso up. Exposes her breasts and uses them to draw in sailors who are passing by, and as soon as they're close enough, she springs on them and eats them alive. You also have mermaids who, very similarly, sit around with snaky, serpentine fishy tails, attracting in men and then eating them as soon as they they've fallen for their charms. There's a demon called the Owl who is part metal and part clay and will steal um, organs from women who are uh, giving birth and has to be chased down to try and get them back again. And there's obviously Lilith as well, who is the first wife of Adam and is cast out of the Garden of Eden when she demands equality with her husband. And once she's out of the garden, she turns into this child-killing demoness who is at the same time a seductress. Um, So she spends her time either murdering mothers and their children or going around seducing men and often having a lot of demonic offspring of her own. Um, You might notice they all have quite a few similarities um, and that's because they're actually all part of the same tradition, kind of a demonic family tree that goes back 4,000 years. That's the thing that struck me
1: when I was reading your book. It's really fascinating how this same story or this same trope about the woman monster, who's a seductress even, or a child killer, it pops up throughout history. You you cover 4,000 years, and it's not just popping up in one culture. It's popping up in the West and the East, all over the place. What do you think has been the appeal of this myth? Why is it endured across time?
2: Well... I would say that there are two sides to this myth. On the one hand, you have this seductive monster who will draw in men and then eat them alive. Or will draw in men and produce hundreds of illegitimate offspring that will embarrass them horribly. And that is very much something that is feared by men. And you get a lot of men talking about this, especially religious authorities, talking about the horrors of mermaids or of lamias or of liliths. Um, discussing how much of a danger they are to men. And they really seem to reflect male fears about women, about women's sexuality, and about men's own sexuality. Um, And the fact that perhaps they shouldn't be having sex with women or perhaps only some women. Um, And I think that really helps that it's tied into that anxiety for men. And then on the other hand, you have this um, child-killing, mother-killing version of the demon and we can see that aspect being passed down through kind of folklore that women are clearly passing this story on to their children who are passing on to their children perhaps it's midwives telling them to their patient telling it to their patients and both of these fears sort of male fears of female sexuality and women's fears of dying in childbirth and their infant children dying have been prevalent throughout the last 4,000 years and presumably beforehand. And the fact that these demons can reflect those anxieties I think is really important for why they've endured for so long.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And how have different people viewed these various monsters? Have they always been seen as um, fictional or have some cultures thought that there was some truth to to the stories and that they had to protect themselves against these monsters?
2: Oh, so, I mean, it's always a bit difficult to say exactly what belief is in the ancient world. Um, But certainly people have been trying to drive these monsters away from themselves for as long as the monsters have been around. Um, There's a whole load of different techniques. Um, In ancient Mesopotamia, you could draw things on your wall, you could tie bags of stones and plants around a patient's neck. You could make little figurines of Lamashtu, the demoness then, and um, bury them. You tend to put one in a city street, one by the city gate and one out in the steppe where she's sort of supposed to be, out in the wilderness beyond the settled area. There's also these things called incantation bowls that were used against Lilith. They're little clay bowls and you write the incantation around the inside and often draw a picture of the demoness in the middle. And then you turn them upside down, sort of almost as if you're catching a spider underneath the bowl, but instead you're catching a demon. And then you bury them in your house, um, still upside down, so the demon's still controlled underneath them. Um, There's also a load of rituals from Kabbalistic tradition Um, for driving Lilith out of the marriage bed. Um, There's an idea that she can uh, create impure thoughts in a man even when he's sleeping with his own wife. Um, But if you do some rituals before you have sex with your wife to drive her away, then she won't be able to get in and you'll be safe.
1: Something that's quite interesting is that many of the female monsters described in your book are child killers or have weird fascinations with pregnant women or very closely tied to pregnant women. And you sort of suggest that they can reflect anxieties about real issues like infant mortality or impotility or miscarriage. How do these child killer monsters link in with real anxieties or real experiences that women were having? Perhaps you could tell us
2: some examples. Sure. Um, So obviously, prior to modern medicine, infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates were terrifyingly high. You're talking well... Historians are still a bit divided on exactly how bad they were. And obviously it varies sort of period to period and person to person. If you're getting enough food, you'll be more likely to survive, obviously. But but normally they're supposed to sit at about one in eight women would die in childbirth. And um, a third of children die before they reach adulthood. And obviously women at this time are doing most of the early childcare as well, if not all of the early childcare. So that's very much seen as kind of a female realm. And they're using rituals against these demons to try and protect themselves during pregnancy, to protect themselves during childbirth, and to protect their children um, after they've been born and in their infancy. It's sort of a way of retaining a degree of control in what must have been absolutely terrifying circumstances. I mean, these women were often go were always, frankly, going through labour with very, very little care that would actually work with very little recourse if something went wrong, with very little in the way of painkillers, it must have been a horrifying experience. And the idea that maybe you could clutch an amulet or or speak an incantation, even if it had no real-world effect beyond placebo, must have given you a sense that you could at least do something. And likewise, if you're just watching your child waste away in front of you and there's nothing you can do, if you can at least speak incantations, if you can at least give everything you can to help them instead of just sitting there and watching, then that has to be something really important. And you see that it's one of the reasons why these demons last for so long is that women need them. And they're only sort of fading out in the 1980s. In the Greek islands in the 1980s, there are still people driving away these monsters from their children. And it's really only as modern medicine comes in and is fully accessible that you see women slowly start to move away from these monsters. It's absolutely incredible. There's one Mesopotamian incantation that I think is absolutely incredible for this. You can feel it across the millennia. Um, Part of it is, I was pregnant, but unable to bring a child to term. I gave birth, but did not bring a child to life. May a woman who can grant success release me. May I have a straightforward pregnancy. It's, I think, something even with modern medicine that so many women today can just feel. May I have a straightforward pregnancy I think is a prayer that so many women utter even now um, and it's amazing that this is thousands of years old and it feels so real and visceral today.
1: What were some of the demons or the monsters that were were associated with pregnancy? If you could give us an example of a, a monster and how it would impact a woman's
2: um, pregnancy that would be interesting I think. I think Lamashti is a really good example of this. Um, she is said to stalk pregnant women, um, counting the days until they give birth. So this idea, she's kind of always hanging around. Um, She drags children out of their mothers before their time. Uh, One of the things she has is like horribly long fingers that she uses to do that. Um, Then during labour, she'll block the birth canal. Um, She will drown children in amniotic fluid Then once the child's been born, she'll feed them on poisoned breast milk and she will grab them in the belly and then make them waste away. Yeah, she's really there at every single stage.
3: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging
1: really horrifying yeah um and then beyond sort of the child-killing monsters we have many many examples of monsters or creatures that are seductive or highly sexuals we've got you know succubus or sirens um can you give us some of the examples that you include in your book and tell us perhaps what they reveal about our attitudes to female sexuality through history
2: Absolutely. So as you say, there's so many of these seductive demonesses through history. And what's really interesting is how neatly they map onto male anxieties about sex, about women, about women's sexuality, and about the sex that men are having. I think one of the most interesting ways to look at it is through Lilith and mermaids. So Lilith, during the Middle Ages in Judaism, she will steal your sperm she will create um, a whole load of illegitimate demonic offspring who will turn up at your funeral and embarrass you and who might even contest your inheritance she will put impure thoughts into your head when you're having sex with your wife she will collect sperm from the sheets after you've had sex with your wife if you're not careful about it And this so neatly maps onto exactly where there were anxieties about sex and male sexual practice in Judaism in the Middle Ages, where you absolutely have sex with your wife, go for it, have a lovely time, but you mustn't have sex with your wife if you're thinking about another woman, which is exactly where Lilith steps in and makes you think about another woman. You mustn't masturbate, which she is there inspiring you to masturbate and collecting the semen afterwards. You um, absolutely mustn't have illegitimate children. And she's there doing that as well. And yeah, she maps so precisely onto those anxieties. And then if you look at kind of siren mermaids in the um, early medieval church in Christianity, they are pure evil. They are women who will attract you in. And then as soon as they've attracted you in, they will eat you and you're dead. Or alternatively, you'll fall asleep and they'll sink your ships and then you're still dead. You get church figures who are doing things like remembering a time they once saw a woman on the street and hurling themselves into some brambles, or um, throwing themselves into a stream as soon as they see a woman, or not even sitting with their own sisters because they're so worried about preserving their chastity. There's such anxiety about men preserving their chastity and not having sex within the early medieval Christian church. There is an idea that if you have any sex, you are unchaste, there'll be real problems. If you are a virgin, then your body will stay pure and wonderful even after your death. You'll wear it as a badge when you're in heaven. It can get you promotions. And there were some members of the church who got promotions solely based on their virginity. And it's so important that men maintain that. And the mermaid there is, again, exactly mapping onto that thing of all women are terrible, any seduction is bad, if your head is turned by a woman, Mm -hmm. it's all over for you. And it is, the demons in both cases are an expression of the anxieties around sex, whether it's any sex at all, or even looking at a woman and having impure thoughts, or very specific masturbation, having sex with your wife while you're thinking about someone else. And so it helps people deal with those anxieties. But at the same time, it's kind of a reassurance that it's it's not your fault. This is an outside force acting on you. And in Judaism, at least, there's a story of, I think, the prophet Elijah um, and how even he has kind of illegitimate children with Lilith. Um, At one point, there's a spell where he tries to drive her away and she says, no, no, we have children. Um, and there's an idea of, you know, even, even a prophet might, you know, end up falling prey to this. It's, it's not your fault.
1: That sort of neatly comes on to how monsters and creatures through history have been used to highlight what was considered acceptable traits in a woman. Um, and in different cultures, obviously, we have different ideas about what the ideal woman is. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about how these creatures have been used to reflect what a society thinks an ideal woman should be? Are there some good case studies for
2: that? So Lamia is a really good example. She's this ancient Greek demoness, um, and she is incredibly seductive, unrepentantly seductive. She doesn't have children. In fact, she eats children and even eats her own children. She murders women, and she also, through her seduction, gets this power over men um, that she's really not meant to have. And there is this idea with her that she's really reflecting what women shouldn't be, that women should be chaste, women should stay with their husbands, women should have children. And obviously, attitudes towards women have have changed throughout time. They, They weren't the same everywhere in ancient Greece, let alone everywhere across the world for all time. But be chaste, stay with your husband, and have children pretty common tropes. And really, Lamia is reinforcing that.
1: I found it really interesting with Lamia that she's sometimes shown as having male genitalia, which you you, you mentioned that cements her failure as a woman. She's got, you know, she's got a phallus in some representations.
2: Yeah, so there's, there's one representation of her with a phallus, which is kind of an idea of the ancient Greeks portraying her as sort of the very opposite of what they thought a woman should be. Um, I would say that there are portrayals of um, sort of people with breasts and phalluses in ancient Greece that aren't horrific. Like it's clearly not always a monstrous thing or even not usually a monstrous thing. Hermaphrodites are generally portrayed as absolutely beautiful. Um, but in this case, it's definitely driving home an idea that in Greek eyes, she's she's not a woman There's also the use of Lamia as a gendered insult. So there's a case in The Golden Ass um, during the story of Cupid and Psyche. Psyche has two sisters who are sort of stereotypes of unpleasant women in the fact that they complain about their husbands all the time. They're always moaning and they're always jealous and they're always manipulative and they always want more than they should have. Um, And at one point in the story, Cupid calls them lamias. Now, everything else in the story of Cupid and Psyche is magical or supernatural in some way. And these sisters are pretty much the only characters who aren't. Um, And it's thought that he's probably using it as a gendered insult, as a way of saying, you know, they're, they're monsters. They're not even real women now they've complained so much about their husbands.
1: So a lot of the monsters we've discussed so far have had quite evil traits or they've gone against the grain of societal norms. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about the story of Melisande because I hadn't heard about her before. I think Richard the Lionheart allegedly said she may have been his ancestor, um, but she apparently had more positive qualities. So I thought she'd be a good
2: a good example to include. Absolutely. She's a personal favorite. So the story is told in sort of the high Middle Ages, connected to a lot of noble families, so not just Richard the Lionheart's family, but others as well, where one of the ancestors is said to have gone off into the forest or even gone off on crusade and found a beautiful woman and fallen instantly in love with her. And he asks her to marry him. And she says, yes, but only if you promise that you will never come into the room when I'm having a bath. And he agrees. They get married. Everything's perfect. They have beautiful children together. She builds giant cathedrals for him. She builds castles for him. And he loves her more than anything. But eventually his curiosity gets the better of him. He spies on her in the bath and discovers that she doesn't have legs. She in fact has the tail of a snake. Um, she sees him spying on her and stays true to her promise leaves him instantly and normally sort of the castles that she's produced for him fall into ruin um, and she, she'll occasionally come back and sort of look after her children but she never returns to her husband who is always incredibly regretful that he broke his vow and incredibly apologetic and to be honest reacts fairly well to discovering that his wife is part snake he never blames her um I think I really like the fact that she is basically the patron saint of leave me alone when I'm in the bath or there'll be consequences. The reason I included her in the book is because she has all these links in with the mermaids that she's kind of a cousin of them people call her a mermaid Um, she has all these connections with the Middle East in that she is she does seem to be very associated with the crusades with crusading families and is sort of comes into western mythology at about that about the time the crusades are happening Um, so it does seem like she is part of this sort of tradition of snake-tailed monsters who seduce men um, and who are all sort of connected to things like the mermaid and things like Lamia. In the West, there is this kind of tradition of fairy creatures and sort of mythical creatures being quite positive um, that, You have people proudly boasting of the fact that they've come from, I think Lancelot supposedly comes from kind of the Lady of the Lake and stuff like this. And that's always a positive thing. That's never a negative thing. These are uh, neutral forces at worst. And you kind of see that coming through in the story of Melusine. And in fact, the story of spouse who um, marries a sort of immortal fairy creature under certain conditions and then breaks their promise is a repeating story throughout Western tradition. So
1: you write that some of the monstrous women in your book have been repurposed into feminist and LGBTQ icons in the 20th century. Um, Can you tell us a bit about some of the figures that have been reclaimed more recently?
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the most prominent of these is Lilith. So the main story that's told about her from the Middle Ages on is she is the first wife of Adam she's made of the same clay that Adam is in the garden of eden and he demands to have sex with her on top which she doesn't want to do she says no we're made of the same clay we are equal and when he doesn't accept this she flies away from the garden and from there on attacks women and their children and also seduces men there's a lot we can dig into about this story, it's found in a satirical manuscript, so it is a little odd, but without getting into that, there is something incredibly inspirational without any reworking to that myth of a woman who knows her equality, who by the logic of the story is equal and who refuses to live where she doesn't, where she isn't being treated as an equal. Um, And it's perhaps not surprising that this was picked up on. In the 20th century Um, the main thing that drives it is there's a woman called Judith Plaskow who was an incredible um, Jewish scholar uh, both Jewish herself and a scholar of Judaism and she retold the story of Lilith in a book called The Coming of Lilith where her Lilith is driven out by Adam and goes off to live in the wilderness beyond the garden and Adam is given Eve and Adam is desperately worried that Lilith will try and get back into the garden so he persuades Lilith to try and build a wall around the garden try and make it as high as possible and in order to convince Eve that she should do this then he um, tells her all these horrible stories about Lilith how she'll kill Eve how she'll kill Eve's children and Eve believes them until she catches sight of Lilith and sees that Lilith is just a woman like her Um, And then Eve climbs over an apple tree, leaning against the wall, finds Lilith, has wonderful conversations with her. And in the end, her and Lilith return to the garden together. Um, And both Adam and God are expectant and afraid on their return. And that's where the story ends. It is absolutely wonderful. And over time, Lilith just became this figure of a woman who's not willing to give it all up for husband and to be a homemaker and to stay in the garden when there's freedom waiting for her on the outside, that she is always willing to claim her freedom, claim her independence and claim her equality. And she also has this resonance in the LGBTQ community. So it's interesting to note, Judith Plaskow um, herself came out as lesbian not at the time she wrote the story, but a little bit after. And there is definitely a frisson between her Eve and her Lilith, um, who sort of admire each other's bodies and who spend hours sort of talking together and laughing together. Um, And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, But there are also plenty of LGBT um, people who found inspiration, again, in this idea of someone who's had to abandon their home and abandon their community to be themselves. That obviously there there are so many people who are LGBT, who are abandoned by their families or have to leave their families or have to leave their communities because of who they are and to be who they are. And Lilith refusing to stay somewhere, which everyone says is paradise, but isn't paradise because she can't be herself and she can't be free to go off and live her life the way she wants to, has such resonance. And aside from Lilith, there are also mermaids, which have sort of a semi-reclamation, I think, for sort of feminist spaces in uh, kind of sit on a rock all day and eat men, but also have a real resonance in the trans community. Some of that is in part because of The Little Mermaid, Um, which has incredible LGBT significance anyway. So Hans Christian Andersen originally wrote it when he'd just been rejected by a man he loved. And it is very much a tale of unrequited love. In his book, then, uh, the mermaid doesn't get her prince. Uh, She instead suffers horribly and he marries someone else. Um, And... It really is the story of longing for someone you can't have. So it already has that significance. I should say it's also horribly misogynistic. Like, don't go to The Little Mermaid expecting it to be, you know, a progressive triumph. Um, and this sort of element, to some extent, was really picked up on in the Disney film. Um, so the Disney film was written by Howard Ashman, who was himself gay and tragically died of HIV, and... Um, sort of only a few years afterwards. He was also involved in Beauty and the Beast, and I believe he died just before the premiere. I should check that. I'll let you know if that's actually true, and if not, you can cut it out. Um, But he certainly died around then. Um, And you can really see in his portrayal of Ariel this kind of idea of someone who isn't accepted by her family for who she is. You know, her father is furious with her that she wants to go um, out of the sea, um, and live her own life the way she wants to. Uh, he destroys kind of her treasure trove of human stuff and it yells at her and she has to go make her own way. And it's partly for love and it's partly also that she wants to be a part of a different community. Um, there's also Ursula, um, who is based on the drag legend Divine and has a lot of lines, which, you know, she's she is obviously evil, but she is also very much, you know a truth teller and, um, incredibly breaking all gender stereotypes while she does it. Um, so that's all there in Little Mermaid anyway. And then, um, also in Little Mermaid is this sort of transition story that Ariel is a woman. She doesn't have genitals. They're not of interest. She's got a fishtail, but she knows she's a woman and at one point in the story, then she trades her bottom half for a slightly different bottom half, and it makes her much happier. And that is something that's really picked up on. Um, so it's why one of the reasons why the, the um, charity for uh, trans youth in the UK is called Mermaids, um, and why mermaids are often a symbol of the trans community. Um, Janet Mock also wrote an incredibly interesting article um, about um, sort of the idea of mermaids and transness, and I would recommend everyone go and read it as opposed to listening to me on this. Um, But uh, she talks about how there is also this other sort of horrible kinship with the mermaid for trans women in that mermaids are portrayed as sort of seducing men in for their own nefarious reasons. And there's things like the trans panic defence, which is the horrible idea that... If a man sleeps with someone or even seems to be about to sleep with a woman and it's a trans woman, if he murders her because he finds out she's trans, that's somehow mitigating rather than horrible and horrific and that that's still used as a defense. And that sort of does tie into this idea of the mermaid, of the idea that trans women are somehow seducing people and that if you find out someone's trans then it's okay to act in whatever horrific way you want and you can still get away with it. And yeah, it that is the really horrible kinship there is um, between the mermaid and trans women as well.
1: My final question to you, um, this has been really great and it's been so interesting. Thank you so much. But my final question to you, and you might have spoke about some of them already, but what are some of your favourite works of literature and art featuring women, creatures or monsters?
2: Ooh, obviously a sucker for the Disney Little Mermaid. There is a Browning poem called Adam, Eve and Lilith, which is very sort of sweet and short and it is the three titular characters all sitting together during a thunderstorm and they're all scared of the thunder and this fear causes Eve to admit that she never liked Adam and Lilith to admit that she always loved him and it's really sort of short and sweet and heartfelt and yeah I really love it. There's also um, Kalida Rawls, A Dream for My Lilith. Um, So Kalida Rawls is an artist and um, she painted this absolutely wonderful series called A Dream for My Lilith of black girls uh, swimming in sort of bodies of water. They look sort of photo real when you see them and then the longer you look at them the more you see that kind of The water's sort of bluer than it should be, and the the swirls of the waves created by their hands, they're they're deeper than they should be. And the girls themselves sort of glow. Um, There's bronze paint mixed in with their skin colour, and it gives them this sort of ethereal, almost divine presence. And all of them look completely at peace, completely contented, completely unbothered by anything that's going on in the world around them so there's no real implication of kind of seduction or danger in these paintings. Not even no real one. There's no implication of seduction or danger in these paintings, which is completely at odds with the tradition normally of painting Lilith. um, And especially painting sort of Lilith or mermaids in bodies of water. Um, There's so many Victorian paintings that are just seductive women in a body of water with a snake tail that it's, it's lovely to see something completely different. Um, And Rawls referred to the uh, reference the demon because she wanted to, in her words, expand on the legacy of Lilith towards the notion of liberation and strength held in the bodies of black women and girls. Um, and she said that Lilith is a source of inspired rebellion. Um, there's kind of an idea that these girls face real horrifying oppression. Um, they look really peaceful, but they're actually surrounded by symbols of kind of black trauma. Um, Rawls uh, linked the water they float into the Middle Passage um, and also the segregated swimming pools and beaches of the Jim Crow South. And in one case, there's sort of random patterns of water and light on a girl's ankle um, that are the map of Coral Springs where a black girl was beaten by a police officer. Um, but even in the midst of, midst of this all, Rules's liliths are utterly at peace and completely in control of themselves. And I just think that's a wonderful way of treating the legend um, and a wonderful way of recasting it. And also, I mean, they're just stunning pictures, just absolutely beautiful.
0: That was Sarah Clegg. Her book, Woman's Law, 4,000 Years of Sirens, Serpents and Succubi, is out now published by Head of Zeus. If you're interested in finding out more about the portrayal of women in Myths and Legends, then be sure to listen to Natalie Haynes' Stands Up for the Classics, where the writer and classicist delves into the stories of Medusa, Jocasta and more. That's available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.